Good news. If you're here, God isn't done with you yet. Life is full of seasons, and each season brings with it new beginnings. New life. These seasons are full of opportunity and uncertainty. Their endings are often bittersweet. But each ending carries the promise of a new beginning. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now from an off-site campus or on the internet. We're glad that you guys uh, have chosen to worship with us today on a beautiful Labor Day weekend. I tried to convince my wife yesterday that Labor Day meant we were to rest from our labors. And she said, no, it's for us to work around the house. And so anyway, but anyway, it's great. There's little fall in the air, a little football. I hope your team did okay yesterday, and uh, uh, mine did, so that's good. And uh, they'll play Clemson later this year, so it's good. It's all good. I don't know, why, why do I talk about this stuff? I don't know. All right, let me ask you, <laughs> are you guys here? Are you, are you, let me start again. Good morning. <laughs> let me ask you a question. Have you guys... Uh, have you guys ever had this happen? Have you, ever, have you ever been reading from the Bible and you come up against a passage of Scripture and you go, really? Did it really say that? Is God really like that? Either you encounter something so countercultural, you know, it's just different than what we're used to, our culture, or so seemingly out of character with the God that you know, the loving God that you know, that, uh, that you think, well, you must have read it wrong, or sometimes it even challenges your faith, and it may have happened to you while you were reading during this series in the book of Joshua. We're in the book of Joshua right now, and uh, studying Israel, taking the promised land, and there are some great principles, but there also are some... Uh, some scriptures that make you wince. And every once in a while you say, really? I mean, somebody out in the foyer the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago said, are, are you guys gonna talk at all about God just killing everybody or telling Joshua to? And anybody ever had those questions? Let, nobody, okay, there are three people right over here, let's talk, okay. So, so last week, um, my son Joshua was teaching about uh, how Israel really got defeated at a place called Ai. And they shouldn't have. They had plenty of, you know, firepower and they were uh, way outnumbered the other, uh, the, the, the opposition. But because they had sinned and because they were a little arrogant and didn't seek God on how to do it, they, they really got their hat handed to them. And then in chapter 8, this week we read that an entirely different thing happened. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 25, it says, so the entire population of Ai, including men and women, was wiped out that day. 12,000 in all. For Joshua kept holding out his spear until everyone who had lived in Ai was completely destroyed. You go, everybody? Really? I mean, what's up with that? And honestly, we could just, we could 
kind of skim, because I'm going to skim this week. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover seven chapters. And can you say skim? We're not going to get everything in them. Because they come back and they do the same thing over and over and over again. Now, there's a lot of good things in there, but we don't have time to do the series all year. But it's, it's the conquest of this area, this area, this area, and this area. And we could just skip difficult scriptures like that, but I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I want us to learn about the character of God from some of these things. You know, even in the Old Testament, strangers and unbelievers were to be treated benevolently. It's in the law, you know. Um, uh, it, it, somebody asked me in the foyer, said, when I read it, it sounds like ISIS. You know, I mean, they go through and they just kill everybody. And, but it's not. I mean, when you look at ISIS, you're looking at uh, so, uh, a group bent on world domination and also that everybody convert to Islam, whether it be by, um, you know, your will or by the sword. And Israel wasn't that way. They weren't looking for new converts. And, and they basically were... Um, conquering a land, just a land. You don't see them going outside that land, conquering other people. They were conquering a land that God had given them uh, 500 years earlier. But even knowing that, you read scriptures like this and over and over and over again in, in the book of Joshua, and you say, where is God's mercy in his treatment of the people who are in the land that he has promised? And so today I want to do three things. I want to cover seven chapters uh, and then we're going to cover the rest of Joshua next week. And then in two weeks, Max Licato, who has just written a book on Joshua, is coming. And he's going to clean up everything that we kind of uh, left on the table. We're going we're to leave him just a little bit. So we're excited about that. Second thing I want to do is address the question of God's mercy. And then I want to tie it together. And at the end, I want to introduce a character, a very important character uh, named Caleb who gives all of us just a little bit of hope, and I think there'll be some hope at the end. So, um, over the next seven chapters, two things happen. Number one, Joshua captures most of the promised land in a series of battles. Uh, in Joshua 13, it says, when Joshua was an old man, the Lord said to him, you are growing old, and much land remains to be captured. So, he realizes that he can't do it himself, and so he divvies up the land as God has told him to, to the tribal leaders uh, in Israel, one of which is, is Caleb. And uh, uh, so, so, but before we get to his story, let me just talk about the mercy of God. You know, three thoughts on God's treatment of the current inhabitants. And it's also kind of how you would approach when you don't understand a scripture, when it just rubs you wrong. What do you do? And here's the first thought. Realize that God is God and he can basically do anything he wants to, okay? I mean, it's kind of like when your parents said, you, you ask why, and, the, and their answer was what? Because. Now, that didn't help you a whole lot, but it's true. They, they, they can do some things because they're parents. God can do whatever he wants, and it requires of us a couple of things. We have to, first of all, ask, does he have the right? And secondly, we have to ask, do I do I trust him in what he's doing? It's like, uh, maybe you read the story in the Old Testament of Abraham and Isaac. Remember that one? Abraham is the father of our faith. He's the father of Israel. And he wants a child. God promises him he's going to have one. He has to wait. And he waits and he waits and he waits 25 years. Makes some mistakes. He's human. We're all human. And finally, after 25 years, his prayer is answered. He gets Isaac, the son of promise. And 
Then when Isaac is about 12 years old, and he's Abe's buddy, and God says to him, you're going to have to give him to me. You're going to have to sacrifice him. We don't understand that. Total different culture. If you say God's told me to sacrifice your kids, we're locking you up. Okay, I just, I just want, to know, I want you to know that. But it's a total different culture. He's heard God. He knows. And so, and, and so he takes Isaac, and you know the story, just before he's to kill his own son, an angel stops him and says, that's good. I just wanted to know if you trusted me. The question is, did God have the right to do that? Did he have the, did he have the right? Did he have the right to, to, um, to tell Joshua to destroy everything in the promised land? And the truth is, he's God and I'm not, okay? He doesn't have to consult me. I love uh, old preacher J. Vernon McGee. He said, let me remind you that this is God's universe and he's doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Okay, so I mean, it's kind of like that, all right? Does he have the right? Do I trust him? That's really bigger than, almost as big as that. Abraham trusted God. He trusted him to the point to say, you know what, if it doesn't work out my way, how I think it should, you can raise Isaac from the dead. That's incredible, incredible trust. And for me, when, when I think that what I think and how God acts are in conflict, rather than default to God is wrong, the Bible's not true, I need to, I need to default to trusting him. Maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I'm not reading this right. Or maybe, according to Isaiah 55 verse 8, God's ways are different than mine. Look at the verse that says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. Says the Lord, my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Have you ever bumped into that? If you haven't, you will. You'll, you'll think, okay, we're going this direction in my home business or whatever. And, 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 and God throws a roadblock and it's not somebody else, it's him. And finally you realize it's him and, and he has a different thought, a different path, a different way. His thoughts are different than yours and it's in those moments that our t- trust is going to be is going to be tested. Do I, do I trust God or do I, do I stand on my kind of my own, my own arrogance, if, if that's what you want to call it, uh, and take the high moral ground on God of the universe? Um, David said in Psalms, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all that he does. So the point is God is God and he can do anything he wants. For some of you, that's enough. You're the ones that were satisfied when your parents said because, okay? That's good. There's a reward to that. But let's go a little bit deeper. Let me give you a second thought on that. When you don't understand, is God merciful? Is he not? Uh, we underestimate the consequences of sin, frankly. We say, ah, oh, that's a problem, or, ah, oh, you know, it's just a little thing. It's a small sin, a little sin. We underestimate what sin can do. Because if you look, look at the Bible, God's whole creation of Israel and a people is to counteract the worst chapter in the entire Bible. And that's Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered in the world because sin destroys everything in its path. Little sin, big sin, destroys everything in its path. And so God establishes Israel as a covenant people who are going to live by His law. And if they live perfectly by His law, then there won't be sin in the camp. And we know they couldn't live perfectly. Jesus came and the establishment of the church and Israel are to be pictures of 
the utopian society that God someday will have in heaven where there is no sin and we are to live in such a way, love one another, forgive one another, all of those things are to counteract what sin does in a group of people. Because sin is what causes people to abuse their children. Sin is what causes people to cheat and to steal and to, and to hurt their neighbors and their friends. Sin is what causes people to kill one another. Sin is disgusting to God, and sin has consequences. And we far underestimate the consequences of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. It's death. Now it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I like the second half of that. Do you? I like it, but you will never appreciate it until you understand the true consequences of sin. It's death. It's death. It's death to yourself. It's death to your relationships. It's death to everything. Now, you, you go, well, you know, I understand big sin. You know, the guy that went in and shot the whole theater in Colorado and all of that, that guy deserves the death penalty. He didn't get it, but you might say, he deserves it. But do I deserve death for just a little tiny slip up, sin, whatever it happens to be? Um, someone said, it's not the magnitude of the sin, it's the magnitude of one being sinned against. I want to illustrate this. Stephen Popovich, why don't you come up here? Will you come up here just saying, welcome Stephen as he comes up. He's going to help me out. Stephen is the director of the well, the college ministry that goes on down. He got some guns. That's not bad. Okay. And a good guy, great guy, married, good wife, has a son, good family. What if I just, boom, just like, what if I'd have hit you like that? What would you have done? You'd have gone down, bro. Huh? He was so stunned even by the thought. He'd gone down, 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 down. But after he got up, he might have hit me, but I'd have been gone. And if he would have hit me, he'd have been looking for a new job, right? It's, life's not fair. Life is not fair. Could our relationship recover if I would have just walked up and smacked you? Eh, possible. You know, he probably would have, trust issues. He'd had trust issues. Okay, but maybe if I go, my bad, you know, I don't know what I was thinking, over time, we could, not, not much consequences to that sin. All right? Good. Thanks, Stephen. Give him a hand. What an actor. What an actor. I want to bring up another friend, Scotty May. Will you come up, Scotty? Scotty's a policeman in our community. Give him a hand as he comes. Yeah. So, so Scotty is one of the guys that helps you park here waves you in from the street. So don't be crude and rude and all that kind of stuff, okay? And Scotty also uh, helps to make this a safe environment for us to worship in, and I, I appreciate that. I don't know about you, and of course serves our community. And uh, it's a good thing. So what if I just, boom! 
What do you think about that, Scotty? Not going down. You're not going down. <laughs> Am I going down? Probably. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm going to jail. And uh, it's going to cost me, and i got to get me a good lawyer. There are several in the church. I'd like you to consider doing pro bono work if you would, but it's going to be a problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a problem. Same sin, different consequences, because of higher authority. Thanks. Give Scotty a hand if you would. It's not the magnitude of the sin, it's the magnitude of the one being sinned against. So, give me a picture up on the screen. How about, how about I do the same thing to one of these guys? Wrong response. Okay. Putin, the guy from, what, Korea, the guy from uh, Saudi Arabia. I could put any world leader up there. Put our world leader up there. If I was to do the same thing, what's going to be the consequences? I'm going to die. Okay, so it's going to be quick justice. Would you agree? Same sin. Same thing I did to Stephen Popovich that didn't cost me hardly anything. The higher up I go on the food chain, the more it's going to cost. Because it's not the magnitude of the sin, it's the magnitude of the one being sinned against. Let's go one higher. Can we do that? How about the God of the universe? Every time I sin, it's a slap in the face to the God of the universe. What are the consequences? The wages of sin is death. But because of the mercy of God, we have the gift of life through Jesus Christ who died and took our sin, which isn't a small deal, it's a big deal, to the cross. We have forgiveness. I love the plan. But here's the deal. God is God, you're not. We far underestimate the consequences of sin. Let me give you a third thing to think about when you run into one of these situations, and that's this. God is a merciful judge. And you go, seriously, merciful judge. It, kill everybody in the city of Ai. Kill everybody in this city. Kill everybody in this city. God's a merciful judge? Well, let's think about it just a minute. Assuming that these people in these cities are extremely sinful, which they are. So they're hurting each other, killing each other, destroying children, all of that. Okay, so you've got, you've got that going on. You, you say, why couldn't God give them a chance to repent? Why couldn't he? Why, why couldn't Joshua go, hey, everybody, we're going to wipe you out. Could you repent and then we won't have to? Could have. Here's a better question. Why did God wait so long after promising this land to Abraham to give it to his descendants, Israel? Okay, so we go back 450 years. Abraham is in this land, and God says to him, this land's yours. Your descendants, as far as you can see, it's going to be yours. This is your land. Why doesn't God just say, okay, take your group, go in, and you possess the land right now? Why does his descendants have to spend 400 years in captivity to Egypt. 
Why do they spend another 40 years in the desert before they come into the country? Why doesn't God just say to Abraham 450 years before, go take it, move everybody out, it's yours? The answer will surprise you. It's God's mercy. Let me show you. So we go back to Genesis 15 and verse 12, and it says, as the sun was going down, this is God's original promise to Abraham, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants, who, that, that's Israel, will be strangers in a foreign land, where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Let's talk about Egypt, when they were taken into Egypt. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth, which we see happened. And then it says, as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And then he says, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. Why so long? Why 400 years? Why 40 years? 450 years, why? Here's the answer. For the sins of the Amorites. Who are the Amorites? They're the ones living in the land. They're the ones that Joshua runs out of Ai and all the other cities. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. 450 years before Israel goes in, God says to Abraham, it's your land, but you're not going in now because it wouldn't be right, it wouldn't be fair. Their sin has not risen to a level that it warrants their destruction. So what's he saying? Is it possible that the reason God delayed for 450 years is he was waiting for their repentance. New Testament says that God is not slow in his actions toward us. He's waiting because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Is it possible that God is waiting for the Amorites to repent? Could there have been another outcome? I think there could have been. But the reality was their sin had risen to the point where they warranted destruction. Their sin was destroying innocent victims. And if tolerated, just left in the land, it would ultimately infect and destroy Israel. I have uh, a friend who had, had several friends who've had skin cancer removed recently. And one of them said this, uh, after he came out of the surgery, they took a whole lot more than what he thought they would. And he said, did you have to take that much? To which the doctor replied, how much did you want me to leave? Because any part you leave will kill the rest of the body. See, it's not pretty, but God can't be all loving without dealing with the effects of sin, which we far underestimate the consequences of. Israel becomes the tool that he uses to judge the sins of the Amorites. Now, lest you think that God is partial, about 450 years later, Israel rejects God's sins, and God uses the Babylonians as a tool to judge Israel's sin. And then the Babylonians take over the land. Now, these are hard passages. But, just like any other passage, with further study, you can see that God is not just arbitrary in his commands. God is good in all, of he, uh, in all that he does. God is loving and God is just. So when something happens in Scripture that you don't understand or something happens in your own life, the quicker you can move to, you know what? God's ways are different than mine. 
There's something here I don't understand, but I'm going to default to trust rather than doubt, then the better off you are. Can you see that? All right, so let's kind of apply that and, and go on down and let's, let's go across several chapters until we come to chapter 14 and we see the story of a unique character named Caleb. Now, Caleb, uh, when we first encounter him earlier in the Bible, is when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and he comes to the promised land and he sends some spies in. You remember that? And there were 12 spies and they all come back and say it's a great place, milk and honey. In other words, it's very productive. But 10 of them say there are some huge enemies in there and there's no way that we can do anything about them. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, the same Joshua that's now leading, uh, say, oh yeah, we can. If God says we can do it, we can do it. Okay? And so, and so we're fast forwarding 45 years and we have a conversation between Caleb and Joshua, two old guys. And here, here it is. A delegation came from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite. He came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb said to Joshua, remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. And I returned and gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord, my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be yours grant of land and that of your ancestors and descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made that promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today, I'm 85 years old, and I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey. And I can travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me, and you will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak, those are giants, living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out, just as the Lord said. And so Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as a portion of the land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and the Kenzanite, because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord God of Israel, and the land had rest from the Lord. Real quick, three nevers from the life of Caleb that we can apply to our lives today. Number one, it's never too soon to put God first in everything you do. It's never too soon to put God first in everything that you do. God bless Caleb because he had a different spirit. In fact, if we jump back to Numbers 14, it says, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land and his descendants will inherit it. He wasn't perfect, nobody is. But he had a great attitude and that attitude started with putting God first. He said, I follow him wholeheartedly. Here's my question to you. Have you done that yet? Is that true in your life? Is God first? Could that be proven that God is first in your schedule, he's first in every decision, he's first in your money. That'll be tested when you have a big chunk of money. When you have just a little bit, it's easy to put God first. When you get a windfall, then it's like, oh, I, I don't know. That's a lot of money, okay? 
It'll be tested. You put God first. Put God first in your relationships. That'll be tested too. Because if you do, then God promises to bless you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. And if you do, everything that you need will be added unto you. It's Old Testament principle. It's a New Testament principle. Caleb did it. And what I would say is it's never too soon to do that. Could you confidently stand before your peers as he did and declare, I have followed God wholeheartedly. I'm not perfect. I blow it. I repent, confess of my sin when I do. But with everything within me, I follow God. Now, the premise of this series is that God has land for you, your family, your business, your spiritual life, this church that he wants us to possess. And could it be that the land that you're trying to take is such a struggle because of half-hearted devotion to God? Because God blesses wholehearted devotion. It's never too early. Never too early. You say, well, you know, I'm gonna, I'll do that when I you know, get to a certain point or age or what. Really? Let me, let me tell you something, somebody I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want to be somebody that God has given chance after chance to make things right. And now, just like the Amorites, you're just waiting around until your sin warrants destruction. You don't want to go there. It's never too early to put God first. And uh, here, let me give you a second never. It's never too late for God to fulfill a promise. That's something we learn from, uh, from Joshua. Uh, you may be waiting on something. Have you, or, or from Caleb, have you ever wondered if God would ever answer a prayer? Maybe you're, waiting, you're going, God, will I ever get married? God, will I ever, will we ever have kids? That's a tough one. God, will this divorce ever go through? Nah, that's, God, will I ever get a job? Will I get a job that uses the gifts that I have? God, will we ever get through this, you know, financial crisis or whatever it happens to be? Waiting on God. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Waiting is difficult. And some of you are in a difficult waiting season right now. Here's what said about Caleb. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. How long do you have to wait before you get discouraged and quit? Boy, I've been waiting a long time. How long have you been waiting? Six months? Really? How about 45 years? Could you wait that long? Or could you wait a lifetime? Could you wait a lifetime? Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith because it's a, it's a chapter full of people who are heroes of the faith. And it lists a whole group of them that lived by faith and died without seeing the promises of God fulfilled. You go, I don't want to live like that. That sounds really frustrating. And it can be. You know, while you're waiting on something, you can, your, your frustration level can really raise to a high point. But it doesn't have to. I don't see Caleb being a frustrated guy. Just the opposite. He's got something to look forward to. He's looking ahead and not backward. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, I love this. This is all of these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. 
People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here's the principle. Listen to me closely, because I'm talking to a few of you here today. You're frustrated. You've been waiting. Maybe you moved here. Maybe you're waiting on one of the things that we talked about, or it might be something entirely different. When you're waiting on a promise, don't waste time looking back. Because if you look back, you will probably have an opportunity to return. And if you do, you may miss God's promise for the future. Does that make sense? So it's a word for some of us. We're waiting. God says, wait with anticipation, not with regret. And here's a third never. It's never too soon to put God first, never too late for God to fulfill a promise. And the third one is, this is for some of you who are in transition right now. You're in a transition. Something's changed. It might be a life change. It might be just an age thing, a job change, transition. You are never too old to take a new mountain. I love this part. Look what it says. Caleb says, so here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle as I was then. He's delusional. That's what he is. (laughs) You don't see 85-year-old guys on the cover of Muscle Magazine. I mean, things are starting to drag and droop and gravity's taking its course. He walks into Joshua, who in the very chapter before, Joshua has been told by God, Josh, you're getting old. Caleb walks in, he says, look at this, buddy, I'm the same age as you are, and I'm just as strong as I ever was. Here's what I think. Follow me on this. I don't think he was, but I think he thinks he was, and that's all that mattered. That's all that mattered. Most of life is lived where? Right here. Right here, between the years. And Caleb goes, I'm, listen, give me the hill country. Give me this mountain. Give me the toughest giants. Put me to work. Don't put me out to pasture. Some of you think it's time to hang it up when actually it's time to get it down and dust it off because God's not done with you yet. You know, people are living a lot longer these days. I looked at a study that said that when we started this church 27 years ago, since then to now, the life expectancy has increased by six years. How many of you are glad we started this church? I mean, it's just had a major impact on the world. (laughs) Birthday card industry has added years to birthday cards because people are living longer. If you're 65, you've probably got another 20 years at least of good productive time. God's got a new mountain for you to take. God's got, God's not, let it, take your pulse real quick. Will you do that? Just take your, don't do the person next to you. You do your own. <laughs> Anything there? If you're breathing, if you're still alive, God has got new mountains for you. He's got fresh wind. He's got things that he wants you to do. In fact, I believe this. You've heard me say it before. I believe it. You may not have done what you will be remembered for yet. 
If you'd have looked at Caleb at age 80, he'd done a lot of great things, but he hadn't done what he'd be remembered for, which was saying, give me that mountain. It inspired people down through the years. And it's entirely possible that you think that, that your best years are in the past and God says, oh, no, 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 no. No, you're never too old to take a new mountain. It's never too late because the best is yet to come. So let, 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 me, let me just close with this, just a couple of what ifs. What if as a result of what we've learned today, what if all of us decided that when, when we come across a difficult passage of Scripture or something in life that's very difficult to understand the ways of God, what if instead of defaulting to doubt, we said, I'm going to default to trust. And I'm going to assume I don't have all the information, God's ways are higher than mine, but I can trust him. God is good and loving in all of his ways. Do you think that'd make a difference in the quality of life that we live? I think it would. And what if? What if we all went all in with God like Caleb did? What if we all said, you know what? Best of my ability, I'm going to be one who follows him wholeheartedly. What if our attitudes were so in tune with God that on Tuesday, when you go back to work, the people looked at you and they, and they said, you know what? She's got a different spirit. She's not like everybody else here. She has a different spirit. That's valuable in our company. Or what if they said about you, he stays positive even when everybody else goes negative. Everybody's negative about this, negative about that, negative about this, and he's positive in the middle of it. I believe Christians ought to be the most positive people on the planet. We are people who, we don't hope in the government. We don't hope in the economy. We hope in God. And the Bible says that he who hopes in God will never be disappointed. Amen. You ought to be the most positive people in the world. What if we, what if we were like Caleb? Said, you know what? I'm 85 and I'm as strong as I ever was. There, there was a country song about that, I think. Strong once as I want, I don't know what it was. Do you think that'd make a difference in your family, in your relationships, in your workplace, in your church, in the world? I think it would. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your kingdom. Thank you for how you move in our lives. Thank you for your plan for us. God, today, we're declaring that we trust you. We trust you with the easy things and we trust you with the hard things. We know that you're good. Sometimes we don't understand your ways. But we're going to trust you. We're going to default to trust and not doubt. God, I pray that you would place within us a Caleb spirit, that we would be a Caleb generation that we would say yes to you. God, that we would wait on your promises. And God, that we would be ones that would, would see the ne- that, that the best days are the next days. They're not the days that are behind us. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.